night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Monday night. And I know it's not really Monday night, but because I had a, a classic program last night, it feels like Monday night. It's actually Tuesday night, and we have a, a fantastic discussion. Sometimes, you know, we talk about the paranormal, we talk about uh, the abnormal, we talk about conspiracy, we talk about a lot of very interesting topics, and we talk about some fun topics. This topic tonight will combine fun and interesting, and it'll also combine nostalgia and my personal, uh, I don't know what I would call it, I guess fascination. How many of you were were uh, kids that faithfully and enthusiastically and frequently, I guess would be the other word, watched the Batman television series with Adam West and Burt Ward, of course? I was one of those kids. Now, I wasn't um, old enough to watch it when it came on television as a, as a primetime series, but I certainly was old enough for watching it as a after-school uh, uh, syndicated series in the uh, mid-70s, early to mid-70s. I'd race home, and I'd watch it religiously. It, I, was, I was obsessed with Batman as a kid. I, you know, Everything my parents got me toy-wise, and we didn't get a whole lot. We, we were not like today, but we, the things we did get, uh, Batman-related. I had several towels that I had specifically marked as my Batman capes. You know, again, it's not like today where you can go down to the store and buy, you know, costuming stuff. You know, it's not, it wasn't that common. And even around Halloween, it was tough to get some of this stuff. But I had these towels that my mother would safety pin around my neck. And I'd run around with what I felt was a Batman cape. And I'd pretend to be the caped crusader. And it was all inspired by the TV show Batman. And as an adult, you look back on the show and you realize there was a lot more going on there than you noticed as a, what, an eight-year-old kid or a 12-year-old kid even, or even a five-year-old kid, however old you were when you were watching it. There was a lot going on there. And there's a lot of reason to talk about it. Now, the show only lasted three seasons. It lasted three seasons. But they made, I think, about 120 episodes in those three seasons. It's not like today where a season of a program is, is 10 uh, episodes long, you know, and you binge watch them and you have to wait a year for, to see anything else. No, it was different back then in the 60s when they were making television. They felt like they had to make a lot more episodes and run them for a longer portion of the year before they started on reruns. But tonight's guest is a returning guest. Arlen Schumer was on the program, I don't know when it was, maybe six months ago, maybe nine months ago. And he was here talking about his work and his study of and his uh, enjoyment of the Twilight Zone series, which is another series that I love. And he does a number of webinars on various pop culture topics. He's written books about uh, pop culture topics, particularly comic book topics, like uh, I think his newest book is called The Silver Age of Comic Book Art. And he loves talking about this stuff because he, he lives it. He, he is in the industry, he's a fan, and, uh, and he's a researcher of these topics. And we're going to have a great time talking about it. He's going to give us some insight as to how this program that affected so many people's lives 
uh, got started and how did it have the impact that it did? And are we overselling the impact? Maybe I, as a someone who was fanatical about it, maybe I'm overestimating the impact it had. But Arlen's going to tell us about all of that tonight. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, uh, as you can tell. I've already talked too much because we have a lot to cover with our guest tonight. Uh, he's not only an expert on this particular topic, but he's um, an expert on the career of Bruce Springsteen. And as I said, we've talked to him about The Twilight Zone, and he's certainly an expert on comic book art, uh, which has far more importance than I think some people recognize, and and we'll talk a little bit about that as well. So a lot to cover tonight. We need to get started here. I'm going to get Arlen with us. It's Beyond Reality. I'll be right back. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Looking forward to a great conversation tonight. I hope you are, too. I see a lot of people in our chat room already talking about the fact that the Batman television series had a great impact on their lives, too. Fans, people love this show. Most people, that is. Not everybody did, and we're going to get into that. Our guest tonight, Arlen Schumer, is an illustrator and a pop culture historian. He's authored a few books that we should mention. One, of course, The Silver Age of Comic Book Art, also Visions from the Twilight Zone. Arlen is a returning guest, and we're so happy to have you back, Arlen. Thanks for being here tonight. Thanks for having me, JV. Now, if I remember correctly, and you'll have to remind me, The Visions from the Twilight Zone is, is, is a coffee table book, and you said it's kind of hard to get, didn't you? Well, it's out of print. It was yeah. published by Chronicle Books out of San Francisco in 1990, and it went out of print um, a couple years later. And that's because it was pre-internet, pre-our current pop culture. I mean, I was a yeah. little ahead of my time. <laughs> Because it's the only coffee table book about the series. It's an art book where I treat the images like black and white art photography, and I excerpt the dialogue and narration and typeset it to read like poetry. Because that's the Twilight Zone. That is exactly the Twilight Zone, and I loved our conversation about that when you were here last. But bring let's let's hit that point for a second here. You definitely were ahead of your time with that particular approach, particularly to the Twilight with the Twilight Zone, but really any of this stuff that we, you know, call pop culture art or entertainment. What is happening with pop culture as we, you know, uh, progress here? We're seeing things like Comic Cons, well, up until this last year, we've seen these yeah. things like Comic Cons become almost, uh, you know, national events and popping up everywhere and celebrations of this pop culture, entertainment, and artwork. What are we seeing here? Is this a trend that's going to continue, do you think? Well, you know, comics, when I, when I lecture on comic history, you can go back as far as the cave paintings in terms of sequential graphics that are, in a sense, simplified cartoons to tell a story couple of hundred thousand years later, you add uh, text and you get hieroglyphics and cuneiforms. And then a couple thousand years later, you get broadsheets in Europe and eventually comics, sequential graphics to tell a story. Our entire culture now, the computer, everything is words and pictures. Mm -hmm. Our entire 
the way we get information is a combination of words and images, and that's exactly what comics are. They're not a fad that's here today and gone tomorrow. You know, JV, when I was 10 years old, me, my older brother, the few comic book friends that we had, we knew that if Hollywood took superheroes seriously as the great stories they were and not treated them campy like the Batman TV show, which we'll (laughs) talk about, we knew they would be great films. Well, it only took about 40 years for that to happen. It was like uh, the old generation in Hollywood that thought comics could only be treated campily because of that TV show. They had to, in a sense, die off. The generation that's greenlighting what we're seeing in movies and television is, in a sense, for my generation and younger that grew up with these great comics, largely from, you know, it started in the 60s, the Silver Age, what my other book is about. And all of those heroes and those comics are what's being done in movies and television today. I mean, if you had told me again when I was 10 years old, J.B., that Arlen, one day in the future on television, every night of the week there, there will be a superhero show. I mean, I just got done watching um, the Superman and Lois, the new show that uh, right. was on tonight. Appearing right after the flash. Like, if you had told <laughs> me and my brother when we were kids arguing who was greater, Jack Kirby or Neil Adams, in our bedrooms at night, if you had told us then that one night on TV there'd be the flash followed by Superman, like, we would have, like, you know, had adolescent heart attacks right there. What, when did this trend start? I, you know, I've, I've kind of done this exercise in my head a few times, and I, I remember, you know, obviously we had a hit-and-miss TV appearances here for uh, superheroes, and then we had, was it was it Batman the movie with Michael Keaton that kind of lit the fuse of this modern age of superhero entertainment? Well, you know, it's funny. After that Batman movie, that came out 11 years after the Christopher Reeve Superman movie. Oh, that's right. That's how long it took. Yeah. Because of the camp residue left over from that for Schluggener TV show. <laughs> and I dropped the Yiddishism right there for Schluggener. Uh, again, which we'll talk about. But, you know, it took 11 years for for that, that first Michael Keaton, Tim Burton a Batman movie produced by Michael Uslan. It took him 11 years. He was a big Batman fan and worked for DC Comics in the early 70s. And he got the rights to do Batman in 1979 when nobody thought they were worth anything. But it took him 11 years, and it really wasn't until the success of the graphic novel by Frank Miller, Dark Knight, in 1986 that really jump-started the first movie. But if you notice, after those first couple of movies, the genre of superhero movies was dead. You know, Batman, yeah. the movies became campy. Joel Schumacher, the director, camped up those Val Kilmer and the George Clooney Batman movies. It really wasn't until the X-Men movies of the early 2000s. And in a sense, Blade was a, a little forerunner in, in the late 90s. And they're remaking Blade, you know, with um, um, Meyer, I, what's his name? Ali, I forget the uh, black actor's name that um, uh, won for um, Green Book. He's going to be the new Blade. But, you know, Blade was a Marvel comics character. A lot of um, the mainstream audience doesn't know that. But it was really the success of the X Men movies 
and then the Spider-Man movies with Tobey Maguire that came right after that. And that was the dawn of the 21st century. That's what we've been seeing the last literally 20 years now, is the rise of the Marvel movies, which, you know, again, DC always plays catch-up. It took them a while to get their franchises going, and they're still kind of sputtering. But the Marvel movies are what, you know, my brother was a Marvel fan in, you know, 1968. If he could have looked in a crystal ball and seen all these movies coming to life, they're, they're going to do a Fantastic Four movie. That's the original Foundation superheroes of the Marvel Universe. And they've done it a few times already, but uh, they're going to do it again. So um, this is stuff we dreamed about when we were kids. And comics have sort of taken over the culture. Ironically, readership of the actual comic books is at an all-time low. <laughs> so go figure. It hasn't translated into more people reading comics. And that's probably a, probably a symptom of just people reading less in general, I would imagine. As, as but you, are they? I don't, are people reading less in general? I don't. That's a good question. I mean, I've, people I've, are still buying books on Amazon. I mean, yeah. there's no more bookstores. But, that's true. I mean, I don't really know. That gets into a whole other thing. But they're reading on the computer, you know? I mean, people are still reading. Yeah. But, yeah, page-turning. Listen, I don't know the state of the publishing industry like I'm more aware of the state of the comic industry. I just find it ironic that there's a whole new generation of comic fans of the movies that don't necessarily know that they were based on these things called comic books. They think they were yeah. new characters just created for the movies. So as, as someone who, as you said, if you, look, if you were, went back to your childhood, you never would have dreamed this day would be here. Now that we're in right. this day, when you look around at the product of this and you see all of these films and all of these TV shows, are you happy with the product? Uh, yes and no. I mean, and this gets back to even the, the love-hate, and I use the word hate in quotes. The love-hate relationship I have with the Batman TV show mm -hmm. is similar to what I'm feeling right now. Look, I just watched Superman and Lois. It's on the CW network, like all the DC comic shows are. They gave them all to one producer, Greg Berlanti. And if you know anything about the CW, we'll, you know, it, it skews towards the, a teenage demographic, right. which is fine. But here's my beloved Superman. And what do they choose to do on this new show? Well, they're the parents of teenage boys, which means half of the hour is going to be all about the boys and their lives and their girlfriends and the whole CW shtick. And, you know... <laughs> That's not what the great comics were. <laughs> right. They weren't filled with half of that stuff. I mean, every five minutes, there's what I call a Hallmark card moment. The music swells, and they talk about their emotions and their feelings, and you know what I mean. I just watched, before our call tonight, JV, I watched on my DVR the second episode of Superman Lois. I fast-forwarded through all what we used to call when we were kids the mushy part. Yeah. Mushy, mushy. Mm -hmm. I mean, even the old Superman TV show with George Reeves, we had to wait until the last five minutes for Clark Kent to become Superman and bang two guys' heads together and <laughs> bounce bullets off his chest. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. We had to put up with that. Right. And it's like, 
it's the great comics, yeah, they've got a little bit of human interest, a little bit of characterization, but their action, their adventure. I mean, you know, imagine if in the Indiana Jones movies, you know, anything that you call great modern adventure Star Wars, you know, they stopped every five minutes to talk about their feelings. That's what the CW, DC comics shows. And I gave up the Flash. It's in its, it just had its seventh season debut tonight as well. Hmm. I gave up on it. I think after season four, I couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. Fifteen characters have superpowers. The, the, the Flash becomes a supporting character in his own show. Supergirl. I love Melissa Benoist as Supergirl. And I'm not a Supergirl fan of the comics. You know, neither was I of Wonder Woman. You know, I was into, you know, male figures and skin-tight outfits. That's what <laughs> I was about. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, but I, I thought she was a perfect Supergirl. She became a supporting character in her own show. You know, she had a crime-fighting sister with the, the FBI, and she had a lesbian relationship, and we had to get into that whole thing. You know, it's very modern and very now and torn from today's headlines. But it's like Supergirl was on for five minutes at the beginning of the show in costume and five minutes at the end of the hour. So, yeah, I got a problem with the TV shows. I got a problem with the movies, you know. The big Marvel movies, especially the Avengers, mm -hmm. you know, every one of these movies has to be about the end of the universe. Right. Some of the greatest superhero stories that we read in the comics in the Silver Age and since then are, in a sense, human interest stories that happen to be about superheroes. I mean, that happen to have superheroes in them, meaning they're great stories. They don't have to all be about saving the universe. But because they're movies and they're $100 billion budgets and the audience expects, it's like going to a, a theme park with rides and attractions. I described the last Avengers movie, Endgame, as like these endurance tests that you have to get through. You know, because of all the money and the special effects and the, and the thrill ride aspect of it. But, you know, when Martin Scorsese came out, what, a year ago, and basically said, these superhero movies aren't cinema. They're not... They're not film as art. Well, of course, that caused an uproar, right, sure. J.B.? Yeah, I mean, right. all the comic fans denounced <laughs> him. You know, I mean, it was a big uproar. But you know what? I agreed with him. You know, are you kidding me? If anyone thinks these superhero movies qualify as great movies that can be talked about, like we talk about Citizen Kane or The Godfather or, or Casablanca or any one of these, I mean, you have to be kidding me. And I'm a superhero fan. And, you know, part of me, you know, loves this stuff. But, I mean, come on. Maybe the first half of the Christopher Reeve Superman movie qualifies as a great film. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. In, until Steven Spielberg directs a superhero movie... Until a truly great, I'd like to see Martin Scorsese direct a Batman movie about crime in Gotham, and maybe he films it in black and white like Raging Bull. You know, until a great director does a great movie that happens to have superheroes in it. You know, I thought the first Watchmen, I thought Zack Snyder's Watchmen was visionary. I thought it was brilliant. 
and I thought it was unfairly criticized and maligned, mostly by the comic audience. But I actually think, if you know the Watchmen graphic novel, I think it was a perfect translation and expansion and even improvement of the graphic novel. But the point is, you know, until a truly great director does a great movie that happens to have Sabir's in it, these are these are the cinematic equivalent of theme parks, of of, of thrill rides, of of sensual, you know, surround sound adventure. And you know what? I love I like some of that, but I don't like it throughout the whole movie. Did the you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do. And and trying to make the transition here to talk about the uh, Batman television series, which we'll kind of ease into that. Uh, did the show itself pave the way for any of this? And part B to that question is, does the current, um, I guess I would say, C of entertainment related to superheroes uh, make us look back at the Batman TV series any differently? Wow, both of those are loaded things. Can can you let's let's start with just part A? Okay, <laughs> that was a heavy question right there. <laughs> okay. I'll ask you that question in, in true Socratic Jewish sage method. Um, why do you? Th- I mean, you you ask the question. You tell me how does the Batman TV show pave the way for everything I just described about these Marvel movies? I'm not used to being interviewed on my own show. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, well, uh, I will tell you this. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what it, what it did yeah. for me um, is it created an interest in these characters as a kid that now I'm able to enjoy as an adult through this right. entertainment. I mean, it it, right. it made me. Um, I'm not quite as dedicated to this as my son is. I mean, he's a, he's at every Marvel movie. He's at every you know. I don't quite do that, right. but I do. I do right. try to catch them when they come on. You know, whatever uh, HBO or Netflix or whatever it happens to be, <laughs> right. and, and I'll watch them. But at the same time, you know that that is all a, a, a germination of a seed that was planted when I was watching the Batman TV series as a little kid. Well, so that is definitely true for you and so many people. But on the other hand, think of what I just said, you know, a couple minutes before about the fact that that's why it took 11 years for the first Michael Keaton Batman movie to be made. Mm-hmm. After the, you know, the first Christopher Reeve movie was very successful, it led to three sequels. But in all that time, you would think, why didn't they make Batman right away? Right. Because of the leftover stink of the campiness of the Batman TV show. And like I said, if it wasn't for Dark Knight, which was a graphic novel that was groundbreaking in the sense of it took the public's conception of Batman, which to the public was still left over from the TV show in 1986. It hadn't changed. And because of the the graphic novel got so much mainstream coverage and it was this dark, serious, you know, Batman that so much of dark Knight is, is in that first Tim Burton, Michael Keaton, Batman film. So that's what really jump-started the movie getting made. So while there is this bridge because you were a kid and you saw the Batman TV show, yeah, but, you know, in real, in real life, in real time, it took a while before we were able to take superheroes seriously again. And now we're in this, like I said, kind of golden age where it's dominating the media. It's dominating our culture. And, yeah, graphic novels are being reviewed by serious institutions like the New York Times and 
you know, we, we had to sit through 20 years of mainstream articles that started, pow, zap, comics aren't <laughs> right. just for kids. You know, right. remember all those articles? Yeah. Yes, I do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So. Let's, um, let's set the stage here. I mean, most, most people listening probably only know the Batman television series from, you know, the, the syndicated uh, reruns. Right. That ran, reruns, of course. You know, that have been running since basically it went off the air as a primetime show. Um, that's, right. you know, I, I, I watched it in the early seventies that way. That's was my interest or introduction to it. And I was one of those kids, Arlen, and I, I think you heard the intro where I would, you know, get the towel and my mom would put a safety pin on the towel and I'd have a We cape. all did. Are you kidding me? It's universal. Running around thinking I was, you know, the cat's meow or the bat's meow as it would be. And, uh, did you it, not have dreams that you were flying like Superman? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I still have dreams that I can fly like Superman. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's almost part of our our DNA. It's like the, the collective comics unconscious, I call it. But, you know, the whole genesis of this television show that, you know, love it or hate it or fall somewhere in between had so many elements that have affected uh, pop culture as a whole and yes. us as a generation. Um, right. let's, let's talk about how it all started because, you know, it kind of, uh, you know, came out of nowhere in a, in a way. Yes. Yes. First of all, I just want to say when you said, you, you know, generations have grown up with it on reruns. Listen, my generation grew up with a Superman TV show on reruns. Mm-hmm. You know, that ended mm-hmm. in 1958, the year I was born. Wow. I grew up with it in the 60s through reruns. Yeah. And that was all we had. There were no superhero movies. That's right. You know, it was like all we had was that that George Reeves TV show. And even as a kid being exposed to complex, the complex Superman, even George Reeves didn't look like the complex Superman. Where was that spit curl? You know, George Reeves had to slick back <laughs> right. know, brown hair. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, so even as a kid, I, the comics gave me and a whole generation this visual acuity to judge these things by. But that's why the buildup to the Batman TV show, when we first got news of it, and remember, this is in the age before there was any kind of uh, um, news about things in the pop culture. Right. Um so, you know, it all happened in the, you know, December of 1965 when ABC started running um, promos because the show was going to debut in January of 66. And all I can say is I was a fan already of the Batman comics. I had been exposed to them in summer camp in 1964 and 65. And so I was a fan of comics and Superman and Batman and just the league of America. And my brother was also getting into the Marvel comics. So we were comic book fans. And the idea that Batman was going to be on television in color, even though we didn't even have a color TV set, I grew up on a Zenith black and white, but just the idea that Batman, my favorite comic character was going to be on TV. uh, It was just, you know, the buildup in that one month from December to January was like the first three Star Wars put together. I mean, that's the only way I can describe a, a, a current audience listening in what that buildup was about. And, um, and then the crushing disappointment five minutes into the first series <laughs> for fans like me. And even though we're out, probably outnumbered by all the people that first were exposed to Batman. See, that's the big difference. 
if you were, if your introduction to Batman was the TV show, then the campiness didn't bother you, right? Because that's the Batman you were given. You know, the only parallel in pop culture I can make is a perfect parallel: the Sean Connery Bond. If you were a fan of the Ian Fleming novels before the first movie, Doctor No, came out. I don't know how much you know about your Bond movie series, but they adapted Casino Royale, Ian Fleming's first book, in 1967, a year after the TV show debuted, and it was a camp version of James Bond. Woody Allen played a version of Bond called Jimmy Bond. I mean, four characters, but it was a total farce. It was camp, like so many things were after the success of the Batman TV show. So the analogy here is, imagine if that version of Casino Royale was the very first cinematic Bond in 1962, instead of Connery and Dr. No. Imagine if the legion of Ian Fleming Bond fans, who only knew Bond from the book, where he was a serious killer, 007, licensed to kill. And imagine if you go to see the first Bond movie, 1962, and it's Casino Royale done campily. Those Legion of Bond fans would have been outraged. There would have been an uproar. Right. They would have stormed the publishers. They would have, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's the only way, JV, I can describe what it was like to be a fan of the Batman comics at the time, especially the ones drawn by this particular artist, Carmine Infantino, who was DC's greatest artist, their answer to Jack Kirby over at Marvel. And his version of Batman was not the version we got on TV. We expected Batman to be treated. You know, I remember Thunderball, the fourth Bat, uh, Bond film with Connery, had just come out Christmas time of 1965, two weeks before the TV show debuted. If you know about those first four Bond movies with Connery, even though there were little comedic quips, you know, that are famous, right. those were serious spy films. I mean, For Russia With Love is practically a Hitchcock film. And can you imagine the Connery Bond going into a discotheque <laughs> and doing the Bond Tusi? That never would have happened, J.D. Never, never. So we expected Batman in January of 66, a month after we saw Thunderball, that's the first Bond movie I saw in the movie theaters. I was seven and a half years old. And, and then we get Batman on TV. And the buildup, and we can't wait. And we're expecting it to be kind of like the Connery Bond. So, imagine the first episode debuts. Okay, it starts out, you know, the, 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 the crime is committed. Commissioner Gordon, the hotline. They call, you know, Burt Ward and Adam West. And okay, they look good in the bat cave and the bat poles. Okay, they, they jump, they get in the Batmobile, looks cool. Okay, they, you know, they get to Commissioner Gordon's office. Everything's fine. So far, so good. Robin looks exactly like the, the Infantino Robin in the comics. Okay. Burt Ward is the, the Dick Grayson, Burt Ward, perfect casting. But then we get Adam West, and I'm checking him out while he's talking to Commissioner Gordon in that first scene. And he's a little paunchy and. And the, uh, the cowl is weird, open eye holes. He doesn't have the white eyes like Batman has in the comics, like Spider-Man's white eyes, you know, the one-way lenses. Yep. And, okay, but still, okay, so far, so good. 
My brother and I are on our knees. I'm seven and a half. He's nine. We're on our knees in front of our Zenith TV set like, like an altar. And we're watching this first episode, 7.30. I'll never forget, Wednesday, January 12th, 1966. A day that will live in infamy <laughs> forever. Right? But five minutes into it, okay, so then they get to the building where they know the Riddler is on the sixth floor, and they've got to climb up the building. This is the very first climbing up the building with the bat rope scene. Oh, yeah. The classic, right? Everybody loves it. Yeah. So they get to the sixth floor, and there's metal bars on the window. So Batman takes out his laser torch from his utility belt. Okay, just like James Bond would do. So far, so good. Laser torches the bars. Robin takes the bars, and he's about to drop them six floors below to the parking lot um, floor. And Batman stops him, and he goes, Robin. You know, the way Adam West was doing that deadpan delivery. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Robin, you... Don't do that. You may injure innocent civilians below, even though it was a deserted parking lot. Yeah, you may injure innocent civilians below. So what does Batman do? He reaches back into his utility belt and pulls out a bat suction cup with a hook, sticks it to the wall, the brick wall or whatever it was, takes the bars and hangs them on the hook. My brother and I, remember, we're kneeling on the floor in front of our TV set like an altar. We turn to each other in profile, and in unison, we say out loud, they're making fun of Batman. Mm. Now, we were kids. We didn't know what the word camp was. Right. We didn't know until years later that it was the title of Susan Sontag's famous essay in the National Review uh, um, called Notes on Camp. She's a famous writer, and, and she talked about what camp was. Remember, this is 1964. The Beatles had just come to America. They brought irony with them. If you think about their news conferences, yeah. Bob Dylan, the culture at the time was beginning to change and becoming more self-aware and more ironic. And she talked about how camp was this artificiality, this looking at things from a, a ironic, humorous perspective. And the word camp comes from in World War II in the, in the army camps when they would have these plays where the men would dress in drag. Well, you know, the closeted gay men during the military, whatever, you know, they started to refer to those things as camping it up, you know, men dressing up in drag. So just like a lot of subculture, disco came from the gay community. The word camp came from the gay community, but it was all about having this ironic, sarcastic detachment, this irony from the thing that you're also loving at the same time. Right. If that's the best sort of description of camp. But I'm seven and a half, my brother's nine. All we knew is, you know, they're making fun of Batman. Right. And then five minutes later, when he goes into the discotheque and does the Batusi, <laughs> so... It was over. I mean, you know, it, it, the show jumped the shark for fans like me five minutes into the first episode. Did you give up on it at that point, or did you give it a second, maybe third no, chance? No, I couldn't give up on it because, first of all, it became an overnight success. You know, there were the three Bs in the 60s manias, the B manias. There was Bond mania, Beatle mania, and Bat mania, and they were three years in a row. 64, 65, and 66. In terms of 
the entire culture. Remember, there were only three networks and newspapers. Whatever passed for media in those days, the Bond mania, Beatle mania, and back, it was merchandising. It was everywhere. And so I had to sort of see where the show was going. So I remember seeing all the debut villain episodes, the first four. You know, Penguin was the following week, then Cesar Romero's Joker, and then, uh, you know, uh, Julie Newmar's Catwoman. But to tell you the truth, I think I did give up on it as a kid because I don't really remember watching the series again until they had a Green Hornet team-up episode in the second season, the 66-67 season, because the same producer did the Green Hornet in the fall of 66 with Bruce Lee as Cato, but did it straight, not campy. So I liked the Green Hornet, and I wish they had done Batman that way. But Green Hornet only lasted a season, but they had a crossover episode. I remember watching that. And then I remember checking out the third season, the fall of 67, when they introduced Batgirl. I wanted to see how they would screw that up. (laughs) Not that I really liked the comic character in the first place, but, you know, and I remember watching just the first episode, not liking it. And then I remember um, literally reading the TV guide in April of 68. I'm, I'm almost 10 years old and reading that tonight is the last episode of Batman. And that was the spring of 68. And they did three seasons, but they did a hundred. It was, it was like really two and a half. Two, you know, but, the first season was January to, you know, May or June, a half season. And then you had the full 66, 67, and then 67. But you got to remember, it was two half hours a week for the first season and a half. Third season was only one half hour. So there's because a, the ratings had dropped. You know, the producer ran the show into the ground because he didn't have any story imagination. Every episode was pretty much really a template of the very first episode with Frank Orshin as the Riddler. Every single episode was really just a carbon copy of that because the ratings for the first uh, Riddler story, the two-parter, were through the roof. It was very formulaic. And Dozier just copied that template for, I mean, every episode had a villain, a mall, and three henchmen. Every episode. So what was, what was the, what was the um, process by which Dozier went with this camp approach to what up until that point had been a very serious superhero uh, comic history? Well, that's because, you know, nowadays, like the Marvel films, you know, the writers, the directors, they love the comics. They know the comics. Right. Well, Back in 1965, when Dozier was called by ABC, do you want to do Batman? Dozier didn't know the first thing about comics. He thought comics were junk, just like the whole culture thought comics were junk. But Dozier was an elitist. He was a dilettante when it came to comics. So he goes to the newsstand, and this is, I think, a documented story uh, that Dozier backed up. But he picked up a couple of Batman comics at the newsstand in the spring of '65 on his way to the meeting with ABC to talk about doing Batman. To so imagine, he's first familiarizing himself with the character on the plane, reading the first comic he picked <laughs> up in May of 65, or spring, or maybe a couple months earlier, was what they adapted for the Riddler. That was the first episode. Because he happened to pick that issue up at the airport. But the camp approach was because when he actually read the comics, 
especially when DC probably forwarded him in one of their annuals where they reprinted Batman comics from the early 50s, mm-hmm. which were not like the Infantino, slick, streamlined, modern Batman. They were this cardboard, cutout Batman, this very stiff, awkward Batman that was basically a watered-down version of the original Bob Kane Batman from 1939, which was more graphic and hard-edged. Uh, and because Bob Kane was really a, a funny animal cartoonist trying to do a realistic style. But by the time we get to the 50s and ghost artists are drawing Batman, not Bob Kane himself, a ghost artist is somebody that's uncredited. Mm-hmm. And that version of Batman is what DC Comics was reprinting in the 60s in those 25-cent, 80-page annuals. And the one they must have sent Dozier was one reprinting Batman's greatest villains. So the Joker was in a story, Catwoman, the Penguin, and Mr. Freeze. Mr. Freeze was a one-off villain. He was even known as Mr. Zero in the comic, not Mr. Freeze. They changed it to Mr. Freeze. But again, that's all Dozier was exposed to. When he actually read these early 50s Batman stories, which were goofy and corny even though they were played straight because that's what the batman comics themselves it was during the 50s he was fighting aliens he was in goofy stories that were played straight just like those the movie serials they made in the 40s of batman which is what and i'm really jumping here hugh hefner was showing in his playboy mansion in the early 60s and making fun of them like we like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, talking back to the screen because they were so goofy and ridiculous. I have to tell you, Arla, just to jump in here, uh, my one of my high school friends and I uh, in the um, late 70s, early 80s, discovered those Batman serials and uh, found bought VHS copies of them. Yeah. And we had a yeah. ball watching them for the same reason okay. that Hugh Hefner apparently was doing it. So Hugh Hefner, in his, this was in Chicago. They, you know, they moved to L.A. in 72, I think. But in the early 60s, you know, he's got that late night show, Playboy After Dark, and all the groovy people, the, the literati and the glitterati, to borrow a Tom Wolf expression. Um, you know, they were all hanging out at the Playboy Mansion, and he, would, he must have had a screening room or whatever. And Hugh Hefner grew up reading comics. He was a big comic book fan, Hugh Hefner. And um, he loved the Batman serials because he saw them when he was a kid in the 40s when they came out. So he's showing them to this hip, groovy crowd, and they're all laughing at it. And they're all drunk, probably, but you know what I mean? It's the Playboy Mansion. Well, one night, it had to be in in 1964 at some time, an ABC executive was hanging out at the mansion. And he's watching the groovy people having a ball, you know, watching these ridiculous Batman serials. And when I say ridiculous... The costumes look ridiculous. Yeah. Batman in one of them has what look like devil's horns. <laughs> Robin's wearing a domino mask you can get for a nickel at Woolworths. <laughs> I mean, they're horrible. They're funny. And when I say horrible, I mean everybody nowadays, because of the internet, everybody loves everything. You know, there's, there's fans of even the worst piece of junk, like but, Plan 9 from Outer Space. You know what I mean? I'm one of those fans, Arlen. <laughs> but, you know, when I say ridiculous, I mean compared, once again, to the Batman comic. Right, right, right. They don't look anything like the comic but character. But there's a certain, there's a certain they're, they're fun. Cheap. 
There's a certain fun. There's so, a... so an ABC executive is taking note, and he goes back to L.A., to Hollywood, and he says to his bosses, you know, I just came from the Hefner mansion. I think we should do a Batman TV show because it's very hip now. And in 1964, 65, the growth of pop art with Warhol and especially Roy Lichtenstein coming to the media for, you know, for three months in 1965, Marvel Comics called their comic books with a little logo in the upper left corner, Pop Art Productions. So all that that Dozier knew about comics, he's reading these ridiculous early 50s Batman stories with this cardboard Batman mouthing all that Adam West dialogue, but earnestly like the serials. And he's going, how can I make this into a TV show? The, the material is ridiculous. But then, maybe because he was aware of pop art, is again, he knew about you know, fine art, I think, Dozier, and, you know, but he was a mainstream television producer. All he knew is he couldn't do these comics straight. They were ridiculous. So he figured, but if I do them, now whether he knew what camp was or what, but, you know, if we do them in a way that we can kind of play them straight, but also, in a sense, camp them up, make fun of them at the same time. So an adult audience will get the joke and kids won't know the difference. Right. Except for a seven year olds who are reading the Infantino Batman comics. <laughs> That's right. And we're going to the Sean Connery Bond films. <laughs> we knew the difference, J V. You got me? I do. And it's it's or I say say it today, you feel me? <laughs> yes. Um the uh the casting of Adam West. Now Yes. Uh, let's talk about that, because one of the things I find fascinating about someone like Adam West and even William Shatner, although William Shatner had a little more success, is that these these uh, individuals became uh, pop culture gods, if you will, yes, later in icons. life. Icons. And, and, and really, Adam West only had significant success with those th- three seasons of Batman. Um, and everything else is kind of marginal for him, I would say. Maybe I'm not, I'm overlooking right. something, but then you'd go, you know, no, you'd go to a com go to a comic con toward the end of his life. And he did it for many years and he would have lines, you know, out the door Decades. around, around yeah. three city blocks. Yep. Yep. So let's well, talk about Adam West. Right. So like I said, we were a minority comic book fans, you know, and by the way, they're making the movies nowadays, not for the comic book fans, really. It's the, the mainstream audience yeah. that doesn't know the comics from Adam. Right. They're pleasing them first. If they happen to please us, we're just a bonus. They don't really care. And, and so, so people coming to Batman fresh in 1966 or in the reruns for generations later who didn't know the comics, if the TV show is your introduction to Batman, then you think, you know, Batman and Robin are kind of goofy and funny. But, you know, it's an insult yeah. to those of us who think Batman is not goofy and funny. With this veneer of earnestness, you know, yes. Robin, you might innocent, <laughs> you know, hurt innocent civility. I mean, you know... Yeah, I think it's it's, is, is there one? There was one episode. I don't know if it was puppies or kittens, where he has to save. Uh, you know, a lot of that kind of thing, where you know he's faced with some kind of moral dilemma, and you know the morality of the situation trumps any effort to fight crime at the moment. 
when I say ridiculous, I mean, and let me tell you something. When they started rerunning the show a couple of years ago on this Me TV rerun mm-hmm. network, yep. I figured at that point I hadn't seen the Batman TV show in decades because I really hated it so much. But I figured, you know what? Everybody loves the show in the internet age. Let me watch them now that they're rerunning them. Let me give them a chance. Maybe they're so bad they're good. You know, that kind of thing. Right. And I tried watching them in reruns. And I got to tell you, they sucked worse than I even remembered. (laughs) And I'll tell you, the show never got better than the first two-parter with the Riddler. You know, if all that survives is the opening two-parter. Listen, listen. Gorshin's Riddler alone is immortal. Yeah. His portrayal of the Riddler, which became the template, again, for every other villain. Even Cesar Romero's Joker is riffing on Gorshin's Riddler. But, you know, um, other than that, like I said, the show never did anything. But, you know, here was a wealth of Batman stories that Gozier had to draw from. At that point in 66, there was over 25 years, right? 1940, 50s, 40s, 50s. Yeah, 25, 26 years of Batman stories. And there were some good stories. You know, if you take away the 50s era with the Batman on, a, on another planet fighting aliens and crap like that. But there were some good bat. In other words, you know, he made up villains like King Tut instead of adapting some of the good villains that were in the comics. And, and you know, he didn't adapt any of the great stories. And like I said, every story followed the same architectural template. And even as a seven and a half year old, I felt that and got that. Were some of the villains that maybe were uh, created for the show itself and not taken from the uh, the graphic novels or the or the comic books? Were those villains right. created with an actor in mind uh, at any at any I, point? Because it almost seems like maybe they were. You know, because I don't like the show, but even though I have a coffee table book about it, and uh-huh. I've read every article and magazine, you know. Um, you know, this is the trivia knowledge that I don't pay close attention to, but I would imagine it became so duraguerre to be on Batman because the ratings were through the roof yeah. and Batmania kicked in with the merchandising that, yeah, everybody in Hollywood wanted to be on the show. So I would imagine like Milton Berle, who was on the ABC network with his own show, when he played Louis the Lilac, I would imagine <laughs> that was written for him, but you'd have to talk to people that really know the trivial, you know, there's trivia and trivial, right? Listen, yeah, there's things about the show. I don't really know or care to know because I don't really, you know, but like I said, there are aspects of it that, that, you know, I, I, I like and love and admire about the show. There are some things that have just, you know, become uh, almost legendary unto themselves, whether you like the show or not. And one of the things is is the the stable of, of actors that paraded through as villains primarily, or some that would pop their head out of one of the windows when Batman and Robin, Robin were right. scaling a wall. Um, you know, it seemed as though it was the in thing is what, uh, what all of Hollywood wanted to be part of at some point. But talk about the villains and the actors. Who do you think actually hit the mark obviously frank gorshin is one of those well frank gorshin to me is the greatest you know that portrayal of the river which by the way he based on this classic film noir 1947 uh 
um, Kiss Me Deadly, mm-hmm. kiss, kiss of Death, Kiss of Death with Richard Widmark, the great actor, in his debut role as this homicidal hitman named Tommy Udo. And there's this infamous scene where he pushes an older woman on in a wheelchair to her death down the stairs. But he had this maniacal laugh, mm-hmm. and that's where Gorshin claims he got uh, um, the Riddler's you know, that, that great personality that gives the Riddler and that body language. And just everything about him is really, you watch it now, and it's still the oddest, strangest, villainous depiction. Really, it stands up with anything in the history of film. I mean, who were the great villains in film? You know, Goldfinger? <laughs> you know? Right, right. I mean, you know, if you think about Gorshin's Riddler, it set such a high mark to this day. Um but yeah, I mean, you know, each of the first four villains, Burgess Meredith was perfect as the Riddler. But you see, I'm a Twilight Zone fan. For me, Meredith will always be, you know, my two, two, you know, time enough at last where he breaks his glasses. Yeah. And the episode Obsolete Man, where he's, you know, a librarian, you know, in, in a future society where they burn books. So, uh, but, you know, he was perfect as the Penguin when that voice is. And Romero was perfect as the Joker, other than keeping his mustache. It always <laughs> bugged me as a kid that you look closely when they would show a close-up, and it's like, does he have a mustache under the white makeup? He had a clause in his contract where he wouldn't shave his mustache. Then you have, you know, you've got villains like King Tut, and as you said, Mister Freeze, which wasn't he wasn't called Mister Freeze in the comics. Um, and then there's well, so many. It was like, Julie Newmar's Catwoman that got everybody uh, all excited. Yeah, because of uh, her hourglass figure, that was practically you know that costume was practically painted on her That's body. Right. You know. That's right. Yeah. What about things in the show that we all remember, like you know the 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 words that would splash onto the screen when they were in the fights? You know, pow, wham, right. oh, wham. Great sound effects that were actually lettered by. I believe, letterers at DC Comics. Um, and, yeah, you know, and again, that was influenced by what Roy Lichtenstein was doing in pop art at the time. You know, he's got a painting in 1965 with the word pow and a fist, you know, punching a chin that, he, you know, he must have taken from some random comic book panel, which is how he made his uh, paintings. But, um, you know, so that, again, this is part of the show that I love in the sense of, there was nothing like the Batman TV show on television before. Something that was self-aware, that had that ironic, campy distance, but that was also visually spectacular in a way we had never seen in television. One of the things, and to me, the the pop culture world is divided. It's like BC and AD. Mm-hmm. It's like before January twelfth, nineteen sixty six. Pop culture was in black and white. After January 12th, it really kicks off the psychedelic era. I mean, if you look at the year 1966, it's one of the greatest, if not the greatest, American pop culture year of all time. Not only Batman kicking things off, and then you've got, in the fall, you've got the monkeys, you've got Time Tunnel, you've got Star Trek, Mission Impossible debuting, all these evergreens. You've got the big three in music putting out their greatest albums. Bob Dylan in May puts out Blonde on Blonde. The Beach Boys put out Pet Sounds. 
the Beatles put out Revolver, which many aficionados believe is even greater than Sgt. Pepper. Yeah, the White absolutely. Album. Yeah. So, so music was exploding. The California sound, the Mamas and the Papas hit in January 66. The psychedelic era begins to kick off, which culminates in the summer of 67, the summer of love. But all through 66, pop culture is, is exploding. Our Man Flynn comes out in January 66, which is a campy, ironic take on the Connery Bond films. So that appears right in the wake of the Batman TV show. So this whole pop culture kind of meta, you know, we use the term meta now, meta because it refers to when a, a, a piece of, of culture is self-aware and is commenting on itself. That's called meta. I don't know if you're watching this WandaVision show on um, Disney Plus, you know, based on the Avengers characters. Are, are, are you into that? I that are you aware of that? You know what? I am aware of it. In fact, I asked my son the other day, what is this WandaVision thing I keep seeing, uh, you know, all over the place? And he explained to me what it was. So he and I have uh, an appointment at some point to sit down. He's watched it. He's up to date with it. But he's going to walk yes, me through it. I think and this Friday it. is going to be its, its, uh, its final, you know, its climactic uh, episode. Yeah. So you should catch up on it between yeah. now and Friday. But the reason why I bring that up is, it's taking this meta concept to to its zenith. Uh, the whole show is is all about being meta, and that's all I'll tell you without giving too much away, because you haven't seen it, and or the people listening in who haven't seen it. But all I'm saying is the meta aspect that we talk about now in pop culture really begins with the Batman TV show. It's the first meta piece of pop culture, really, on such a grand scale. And nothing was the same after that, for better or for worse. Yeah. You know, it, it shows like Lost in Space and Man from Uncle and Boys Bottom of the Sea, which had preceded the Batman TV show, began to get campier. And many aficionados think the Batman TV show ruined those shows. Mm -hmm. While it also, you know, like I said, Batmania in 1966 was just as big as Bondmania and Beatlemania. At the time. And then, you know, like a lot of fads, it quickly, like I said, Dozier, I think, ran the series into the ground with his repetition and um, really just bad writing, bad stories, I think. As a seven-year-old, when you're watching this, how about the Batmobile itself? Did that, did that hit the mark for you? Okay, so I'm a real purist, as I think you can tell. Yeah. Maybe I didn't feel this way or articulate it when I was, you know, seven years old reading Batman. But, you know, I'm not a car guy. I didn't grow up, you know, worshiping and loving cars like maybe every other American male did. Uh, I was more into Sean Connery's Bond than his Aston Martin. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, I and you know how popular that, that car became. That's right. The Batman that affected me the most, the Batman of my childhood that, you know, the Batman of the Neil Adams era of the late 60s, early 70s, which is really the genesis of what we call the Dark Knight. The mysterious, cool Batman, mm -hmm. the opposite of the TV show camp approach. That Batman that became what you call the Dark Knight. My Batman doesn't tuck his cape under his ass <laughs> and get into a car and drive around. <laughs> My Batman swings from the rooftops on a silken cord. 
And somehow, mysteriously, like the shadow who he's based on, yeah. somehow he shows up at the right. opposite end of Gotham City. Right. My favorite Batman stories of the, during the Neil Adams era that lasted for five years of maybe the greatest five years of Batman stories ever. There's no Batmobile. There's no Batcave. There's no Alfred. There's no Wayne Mansion. Mm-hmm. He strips Batman down to his roots. Therefore, I know the Batmobile is such a big deal for people, but I could take it or leave it, and I'd rather leave it because, like I said, my Batman swings on a rope from rooftops as he was originally conceived. You know, the Batmobile in its form as we know it as a special automobile, that doesn't show up until really the 1950s. Okay. In the 40s, it's just a big bulge mobile, like, oh, 1940s cars right. were, in, yeah, in the early 40s, they gave it, you know, the bat fins and all that. But, you know, it was still just the Bulgemobile driving around. One of the other... But, like the, I said, you know, uh, that's not my Batman. One of the other things that uh, that seems to have um, lived a life greater than maybe the show itself is the Batman theme from that show. That theme, uh, you know, you can sing a few. Which scene? Which scene? Uh, the bat? No, the theme song. The theme song. Oh, the theme! Oh, are yeah. you kidding me? Yeah. Yeah, that's maybe along with the Twilight Zone. Do do do. Yeah. That, that's the greatest theme of the sixties. Yeah. Tell Neil me. Hefty, who also did so many other great themes, The Odd Couple, and I mean, yeah, are you kidding me? Arlen, and that you, opening you, animation, you know, is is one of the great top again. I have to tell these you the things I loved about. Yeah, the I show. have to tell you the animation almost got me. Uh, I like the animation better than the show itself. I think I, I lived for that opening. I can't opening believe you said that, Jay. Because at the time, I remember watching the animation, going, "Holy crap! Is yeah. the show animated?" Yeah. I mean, I was a fan of the Flintstones. Uh, the idea of Batman being—I wish they had made Batman an animated version. You know who that looked like that. You know, Arlen, are you are you by any chance uh, have uh, the YouTube stream of this program playing? Yes. Why should I? No, 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 no. I just I want to hold something up to the camera. And it's yeah, gonna... well, I'm looking at it right now on my on my it... secondary screen as I'm talking to you yeah, on myself. It, it'll take a few seconds for it to show up on your screen. Um, but um, this this was I, I almost wore this out. My father bought this for me when I was a kid. And um, I don't know if you can see it. Oh, my yet. God. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is the Neil Hefty uh, Batman theme album. And um, Okay. Well, let me just tell you something. You've got the authentic version. The Neil Hefty original that he arranged, the one on the TV show was slightly rearranged by the great Nelson Riddle, who mm-hmm. did all of Frank Sinatra's great uh, era songs. And Nelson Riddle's famous. But the Neil Hefty version, if you know it, has a heavier bass, heavier drum, the kind of Peter Gunn, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, that really hefty kind of riffed on and came up with dun 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 Yeah, the Neil Hefty version, the Nelson Riddle version is a little poppier, a little lighter. Um I so much favor the Neil Hefty version. So, yes, JV, that is the great version. And you can get it on iTunes or whatever. But, but yes, if you think the Nelson Riddle version is the definitive version of the theme song, no. It is the Neil Hefty original. 
right? Stick with the original. How is it that that a show which basically airs, as you said, for two and a half seasons, becomes so iconic? And I equate that to Star uh, Star Trek as well. Three seasons of Star Trek, and right. b- both of those television shows. Bat- Batman obviously had a history prior to the show. Star Trek was created with the show, right. but have spawned so much entertainment after the fact. Only three seasons of a television show for each of them. Right. And why is that? Yeah, why why yeah. do they have this? Well, I think that, it's first of all, that's a great question, J.V., in the sense of, as I'm trying to think of the best way to answer it, I think it really gets down to the role of heroes in our society when they're done well, when they inspire people. That feeling is embedded in us, in our collective unconscious, and we secretly love that. And that's the longevity of the Bond films. And the we love when a hero is done right. We love the cowboy for years. The cowboy was a kind of a hero. And in our society, you know, going back, the biblical heroes, you know, um, the religious heroes, they were all, Sam's, everybody, you know, heroes in our society are, form our myths. And, and that's what we, that's the stories we've been telling each other as mankind. And I think in the 20th century and 21st century, our heroic myths are these TV shows, are these comic books. And that's why they're not fads. That's why they've lasted and stood the, the test of time. Is because I think at the heart of it, you know, we long for heroes in our lives to teach us how to be heroic in our own lives when we have to stand up and 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 be accounted for and make decisions and act heroically in our own lives that's the role of all heroes religious or secular is to inspire us to act heroically the um television show that answered the question i'm not sure i'm thinking about it it, you know i can get more concrete with an answer um they develop fan bases you know in the internet world we're used to fan bases, you right. know, there are groups for things. But back in the Batman and Star Trek days, you know, Star Trek only got a third season because fans did a letter-writing campaign. Yeah. It was the viral campaign of its era, and it succeeded. They gave Star Trek a third season because fans demanded it. And I think Batman always had a fan base from the comics. right? And that's why... When Neil Adams, only a couple months after the TV show ended, in the summer of 68, draws his first real Batman issue, and he gives us the Dark Knight that we know of today. Frank Miller's about my age. He was reading that comic and being blown away by Neil Adams' version of Batman, because Neil Adams was reclaiming Batman from the camp wreckage that the TV show left him in. And rescued him and rebooted him. You know, that's another modern pop culture phrase. Neil Adams didn't create Batman, but he recreated him and gave us the Dark Knight in one issue in in the summer of 68. And it was basically saying to all of us fans, hey, everybody, I'm a Batman fan, too. And this is what Batman could be. This is what Batman should be. Yeah. And that's the Batman that we know of today is the Dark Knight. Nobody would think of doing a campy Batman version now. No, no. Unless it was a total homage to the, you know, the, the 
And believe me, they, they've done comic book versions of the TV show. I mean, they're trying to milk that TV show <laughs> for all it's worth. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and I think reruns are responsible for keeping... Listen, I'm a Twilight Zone fan, but I grew up with the show on reruns. Right. I was too young to have... I remember the, the very last season, faintly, because I was like five years old. But I grew up with the show on reruns, so God bless reruns for are, keeping these things in... Do you a think? Do you think, Arlen, if the if the television show and maybe Batman is a poor example of this, maybe Star Trek is a better example of it. But if the TV show had extended for five, six seasons, that it wouldn't have, it would not have had the um, the special place in in so many people's hearts because it probably would have run a course that you know it couldn't run in three seasons. You know, that's an interesting question. I think the story goes that. When ABC decided to cancel it, um, NBC wanted to pick it up and and keep the show on the air, right? Um, which has been done in television history sure. the last couple of decades. But back then, that was unheard of that another network, you know, would do. You know what I mean? Like, I can't think if if that That's might right. have been setting a precedent if any other series had done that before. Jump networks, but. NBC supposedly was going to do it, but ABC so quickly trashed the sets for the show after the show was canceled that NBC didn't want to invest the money in rebuilding the sets. So imagine had ABC not ruined the sets, what would have been, based on your question, had NBC picked up Batman for the fall of 1968 and it had run a few more years? Who knows? That's an interesting question. Would it have been under Dozier? Would it have been with another producer? I don't know. But, you know, that's a very interesting, like, alternate universe question the, where uh, Batman ran for, you know, five more seasons or something. The um, f- the TV show is also spun off a film, and I assume that film was just an effort to capitalize on its, uh, you know, initial success and huge popularity in the of beginning. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, isn't, there, isn't there a I mean, scene with look, shark they, repellent? They had all the sets yeah. from the TV show. They had a bigger budget, so they had things like the bat boat and the That's bat right. copter. That's right, yes. But it's basically <laughs> a bloated, ridiculous yeah. TV show episode. Isn't I mean, there a shark? Isn't there something I, you know, to do with a shark? You, know, you asked me all that, did you stick with the show? Yeah. You would think in the summer of 66, when that film came out, I would have seen it. I don't remember seeing it at all. Wow. That's how much I didn't already like the show. <laughs> it, it, as, as, as you stand here today, and, and clearly a very purist when it comes to uh, when it comes to being a Batman fan, which I respect yes. greatly. But do you look back? Do you look at the Batman series for all its, as you pointed out, flaws? Um, and and I, I remember I say love hate, yeah, and I okay. use the word hate in quotes. Okay, but there's a lot of love there. And and what's the love part? Is it is it what it did for awareness of of the character, or or just some of the innovations okay. of the show? Okay, so so the love part is I think during our conversation I touched on the things I liked about it. Yeah, you have. I it's a little look. It's it's a nostalgic part of my childhood. It was such a big part of my childhood. Just the build up alone was so memorable. Um, that I can remember what it felt. I remember the TV commercials mm-hmm. that ABC ran in December of 65. They were very expertly put together because when it came, you know, there were these like three new shows coming out in January 
for ABC. So they talked about the first one. Yeah, this is a 30-second commercial. And then they talked about the second show. But then they said, and then we have Batman. And they only showed the Batmobile racing out of the Batcave. You know that classic scene? Yeah. Um, stations of the Batcross, I call them. Well, you know how fast the Batmobile was, so we couldn't see Batman and Robin. Then they showed a clip of Batman and Robin jumping out of a giant prop elephant, of all things. Um, but it was in the background of the scene for only five seconds on, on the commercial, and you could barely see them either. So ABC was very expert at not letting us know what these iconic costume characters looked like. So I remember that like it was yesterday, that buildup of suspense. I remember the era of Batmania and just all this stuff. So a part of me is just pure nostalgic, yeah. nostalgia for a part of my childhood that I, re- I remember so clearly. But yes, I like the fact that, that there was an artsiness to the show, that the sound effects, the tilted angles. Um, eventually, when I saw the show in color, you know, the bright colors. So the visual artist in me appreciates and likes that aspect of the show. Um, And, you know, just the whole phenomenon of it. Um, Listen, I've got things in my apartment, you know, all my knickknacks and comic book doodads, and I've got plenty of images from the TV show. I even bought an Adam West Batman mask off of eBay that... The claim was used by one of his stuntmen. It was the most I've ever spent on a oh, wow. on something that I don't even want to reveal to you, but it was <laughs> the most I've ever spent on a pop culture knickknack. That's a cool so, one. So, you know what I mean? That's what I mean about yeah. the, the love. Uh, and again, hate's a strong word, so I'm using it in quotes, but the expression is a love-hate relationship. We're going to run out of time here. I want to hit a couple of questions that our chat room has been asking, um, and they, uh, they yeah. want to know your thoughts on the current Batman graphic novels. You know, there are certain comic characters who are tied to their very first artists. Like when I think of Spider-Man, there's this artist named Steve Ditko who created that unique costume. To me, he's the greatest Spider-Man artist, even though Spider-Man's been illustrated by many great artists. Mm -hmm. Batman, to me, has been illustrated by so many great artists to this day. I mean, DC Comics knows what they've got. He's their golden goose, so they put their best talent on him. So Batman's always been illustrated by, in the history of comics, all the great illustrators have one time or another done a great Batman story. Frank Miller's Batman Year One, what are your thoughts on that? That's that's written by Miller, but it's illustrated by a great comic artist named David Mazzucchelli. And I actually love Year One more than I like Dark Knight because I like Kelly's artwork better than I like Frank Miller's. Um, so, yeah, Year One is, is one of the great modern uh, movies. And I think Warner Brothers Animation, the same people that did the great Batman animated series, did a, uh, a, you know, a standalone 90-minute version of year one that is very faithful to Mazzucchelli's artwork. So if you're a fan of year one, you should seek that out if you don't know about it. And what do you think about the upcoming uh, uh, Robert Patterson um, portrayal of Batman? Yeah, you know, I respect him as an actor, but to me, again, it all comes down to what Batman looks like. 
I really have hated, and this is I'll use the word hate, all of the live-action Batman costumes, especially since the Dark Knight of the Mike Keaton era, we've gotten this, what I call the Michelin Man, rubberized, <laughs> yeah. molded, mechanical-looking Batman outfit. I hate that. I really hate that. I hate the open eye holes with the black mascara underneath. You know, imagine if in the Spider-Man movies, JV, instead of the white eyes of Spider-Man, which are one-way lenses, the actor was wearing, his eyes were exposed and he was wearing white, you know, mascara around yeah. his eyes. Yeah. Fans would be in an uproar. Yep. So why is it okay for Batman to have exposed eyes with black mascara, but not Spider-Man? You know, part of Batman's visual appeal in the comics is when he's in the shadows and all you see, JV, are the white eyes, the slits of his white eyes. Right. That's what every artist has done a scene of that. And yet, we'll never get that in the movies because he's got open eye holes and black mascara. <laughs> yeah, until they show me a scene, JV, in the movies where Batman's at his bat vanity, you know, putting on his costume, and, and Alfred goes, Master Bruce, the bat signal, you're wanted by Commissioner Gordon. You like my lousy British accent? And Batman <laughs> is putting on his bat scara, and it's going, hold on, Alfred, I'll be right there. Until <laughs> yeah. so they have that scene, I ain't buying the mascara. And notice when he takes off the mask in the movies, his mascara magically disappears. Yeah. You like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh. So I'm a purist. I can't get past the open eye holes. Sorry. You know, sue me. What can I tell you? We, we could talk about this all night. I want to spend the remaining couple of minutes we have talking about your yeah. webinars, the things you're doing online people that people can participate in. Right. What do you have coming up? Yeah, so I've got, I'm working with a company out of New York City called New York Adventure Club. And their website, very simple to remember to get tickets for my webinars. They're only $10 nyadventureclub.com. I'm doing one tomorrow on the relationship between fine art and comic book art at 1 o'clock, my time, Eastern Standard Time. Then the following Friday, March 12th, I'm doing a Silver Age webinar based on my book, The Silver Age of Comic book Art, about comic book art in the 60s. That's at 5.30, my time. Then on March 15th, I'm doing one called NYC Comics, which is all like a survey of how New York City itself has been almost a character in comic art history from the very first comic strip, The Yellow Kid in 1895. It was a, New York City was its backdrop. Two things, I mean, in the dark night, Miller made New York City practically a character. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but of course it's called Gotham City in the comics. Uh, then I'm doing, you ready for this? Right before Passover, on February, on March 26th, I'm doing Jews in Comics, a whole history of how all the superheroes were created by American Jews and how they were reflections of the biblical heroes and so much. Hmm. And then on March 30th, right before Easter, I'm doing Christ in Comics, showing how the Christological nature of, of Christ is in all the superheroes. They act heroically to save, they give up their lives to save the lives of the earth or the people they're protecting. So I do a whole webinar on that. And if you go to NewYorkAdventureClub.com or ArlenSchumer.com, you'll see those five webinars. And I'm doing three other webinars on my own 
one on the greatest live Bruce Springsteen performances, and one on the Connery Bond films, and one on the great Steve Ditko, the guy that created Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. So I got eight webinars in the month of March, the most I've ever had. And these are these are open to anybody who, you know, just buy the ticket and you can participate? Anybody. Yeah, in fact, the three ones I'm doing on my own, I'm doing for free. The five with New York Adventure Club are $10, but uh, double your money back if not satisfied. You know what I mean? It's uh, it's it's great stuff. I did want to ask you about Bruce Springsteen. He was, he's been in the headlines uh, recently, and I'd heard that th- those situations or whatever was going on there had been resolved. Uh, is right. he, is he all right? I mean, what have you what have you heard? I mean, you must we must keep an eye out for what's going on with him. Well, all I can say is for somebody of the stature of Bruce, how well he's respected, how the league that he's in in terms of rock star celebrity, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. Bruce has led a practically spotless career in terms of giving the media any dirt on him like they get on other celebrities. You know, uh, Bruce has never burned out. He's never done drugs. He's never made scenes. You know, when you think about all, you know, everybody from Dylan to the Rolling Stones to you name it, everybody's had their run-ins with the media. Not really Bruce. If you remember back in 1988 when his affair with Patty Scalpa broke, then all of a sudden the media had something about, oh, Bruce the adulterer, oh, if you remember, they wrote articles. They finally had something on him. You know, the media loves to elevate sure. and then tear down. That's right. So other than that and a few other little tidy blemishes, Bruce has led a, a practically spotless career given the mountaintops that he's climbed. Yeah. So when this thing happened, once again, now the Internet media uh, now – along with the traditional media, again, wow, we finally have something on Bruce Springsteen. Oh, he was drunk, DUI, oh, we finally have something. Well, my instincts about Bruce are better than that, and I knew it had to be some screwed-up situation, and sure enough, it was. His alcohol level, it was on his motorcycle, it was .02, whatever. The point is, I'm sure these idiot cops, and I use the term idiot a little loosely, but given the events of the past year or so, there's a few too many idiots in the police force, if you know what I mean. So, uh, you know, they looked at Bruce. He was taking shots, I think, with fans while he was off his motorcycle, and then he got on it. The point is, I think they wanted to arrest him because they thought, oh, look, we finally have Bruce Springsteen drunk driving. That's what it sounds like to me. They probably, sure they, enough, yeah, they probably that's thought, exactly what it was. They probably thought they could do some interviews. They could, you know, whatever. Who knows? Well, just that, you know, mm-hmm. like a lot of people who take jobs of authority, like yeah. policemen in the military, they love lording their power over citizens like you and I. Yeah. And when they have a citizen like Bruce Springsteen, they figure, well, we're going to be known as the guys that got Bruce Springsteen for drunk driving. So don't think that didn't play into it, I'm assuming. But yeah. I care more about his music and his yeah, career course, than I care course. about his personal yeah. life. So I, I often think like we, I said, we try to he's, hold... He's we, a real-life hero. Yeah, and we try to hold some of these people up uh, you know, to standards that none of us live by. So I don't understand why we do that to anyone, whether they're a successful musician or an actor or whatever it happens to be. It's just unrealistic. All right, so final question, Arlen, then I'm going to let you go. Is there a superhero that that has not been brought to the screen, whether it's the small screen or the big screen, that you want to see brought to the screen? Or 
if you had to pick one that they should do over and do it the right way, which one it would which one would it be? Wow, that's another Wow, that's another great question. Now I got to stop and think about uh gee, like what are my favorite superheroes and who would I wish uh you know, I guess because I'm still unsatisfied they've done a live action Batman that looks like the Neil Adams Batman. Yeah. Um that's kind of what I'm still waiting for. So that's sort of part B and in other words I still don't feel they've done Batman right visually as as live action. Right. Um uh, but in terms of another superhero that, you know, boy, I, I got to really stop and think about who my favorite hero Because after Superman and Batman, um, it's a short list, you know. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I'll get back to Neil Adams. He had a great character called Dead Man, um, who was like a living, you know, ghost that could inhabit the bodies of um living people and uh and he was a unique looking character and man that would make a great like limited that's, series yeah, that sounds, man itself was kind of a limited series that sounds really comic. cool that sounds really cool actually i'm not familiar with yeah that. yeah wow yeah so i i would you know now that you asked about it, and, that, and that's the series that made neil adams bones before he did batman so now that you ask me yeah i mean dead man's one of my favorite characters so I would love to see like an HBO, you know, type series, and that's what they're doing nowadays. Yeah. You know that we're we're in a golden age of television where they can have just you know ten seasons of uh, ten episodes of of a, a show and call it quits, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of kind of interesting to see how that's that's changed. Uh, the the, yeah. the molds that we're used to that we grew up with just don't you know those rules don't apply anymore, and it's refreshing. The book is called, right, absolutely. The book is called The Silver Age of Comic Book Art. It's available where everywhere, Arlen. Well, you know, um, if you get it through me, my website, the Silver Age of Comic Book Art dot com, or from Arlen dot com, I personalize it. I I sketch in it. Um, you know, unlike buying it on Amazon, where only Amazon makes any money, you know, support <laughs> right. your local freelance artists and authors. You know what I mean? That's so important. Again, Arlen, thanks so much for being here. I have a great time when you're on the program. This was no exception, and uh, I appreciate your time. JV, thanks for having me on, man. It's always a pleasure, and I certainly hope we get this chance to do it again on some other pop culture topic that we both love. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.